for your word that you have given to us, that you provided for us, that it does you speak through it. We encounter you as we read, as we hear these words. And we're grateful that you are faithful to, to take your truth, to, to touch it to our lives in the particular ways that we need to store it away for the future, to use it for the now, to, to heal the past. And I pray, Father, that you would do that this morning as we read, as we think about these things, that it would sink into our hearts and our lives and that indeed we would be transformed as a result of gathering and hearing together your truth and, and knowing that you meet us here. Without you, we don't have any other hope. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. Uh, so I have a couple weeks here to be preaching this week and next week. And so we're going to be looking at this chapter this week and next week. A couple uh, scenes or settings in this as we look at. This particular one we're looking at 9, 9 through 13 is the calling of Matthew, the tax collector. You'll find it also in Luke and in Mark. And in those places you'll see that he's identified as Levi. He identifies him as himself as Matthew here. We assume that he's Matthew, that this name was given to him by Jesus. And he uses this personal given name by Jesus, uh, which means gift of God. And so we're, as we look at this, these few verses this morning, 9 through 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this gospel, we have these five verses where Matthew tells us about this encounter that he has with Jesus. Just a few short verses here. It's like a, it's like a cameo kind of uh, showing in, in a movie. Somebody just shows up. Some of you who like these kinds of things know that sometimes a director will write themselves into a movie. That, that they're just, they'll just show up kind of nowhere. They'll have a cameo appearance and they'll show up in an insignificant part. It really means nothing. If you like the Lord of the Rings and that trilogy, you'll find that the, the director Peter Jackson shows up in each of the three in certain places. And so it's kind of a fun Where's Waldo. But... Matthew here gives us a picture, a little vignette of, of, him, of himself, of enca- this encounter with Jesus that he has. These five verses in the middle of a section where we have lots of healing going on, lots of things happening. We have this single moment, this encounter. It's very simply described of this radical transformation that takes place in the life of this tax collector, Matthew. It's short, it's bare, it's void of many details at all, but it clearly states the facts that we need to know about this encounter. But this far being from just some sort of cameo appearance, some sort of just kind of whim of the author author wanting to put himself into this place, I think as we read it, as we see it, as we understand it, really gives us a picture of the really the heart 
of Jesus. It gives us a picture of the mission for which he came. The gospel writer wants us to see that this is really a central hub and it connects and frames the whole section. Indeed, it gives us a picture of who Jesus is. And as we think about this morning, what it means to be a follower of Christ, to be a a disciple of Christ, we need to see this picture, this calling of Matthew, this despicable, lowest on the kind of the social totem pole person as Jesus reaches out to him. But real quick, let's kind of zoom out to the 30,000 feet as we look at the gospel as a, as a whole to kind of get this, to, to frame this properly. Matthew shapes his gospel in a particular kind of way, indeed, as all gospel writers do. They're not just simply giving you kind of chronological history and facts and ideas and even things that Jesus did, but rather he's given us real historical events, real events that Jesus, things that Jesus did, but he's framing them and shaping them in a kind of way to, to communicate something. He has a emphasis. He has a, he's got themes that he wants to demonstrate. He wants to show to his readers, to the early church and to us today. And so he writes with a particular purpose, with a particular angle, as he takes these events and the teachings of Christ and he puts them into his gospel. There's number of themes as you read through it you would find, but there's three of them I want to kind of highlight this morning because I think they tie into truly truly understanding the passage that we're looking at this morning. The first theme is fulfillment. Fulfillment. And what Matthew wants his readers to know, what he wants the church to know, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. That Jesus is that one that is anticipated and told about and spoken of and promised for millennia prior. He has shown up in space and time. He has fulfilled that prophecy, that promise. He is God in the flesh. He is God with us. That's who he is. He is the king now coming to bring the kingdom to save God's people from their, from their sins. So that's, that's who he is. He is the culmination of all of history. He says he's the fulfillment. The second theme is discipleship. Discipleship. That Jesus comes to make disciples. And, it, and then Matthew says, I want you to see, church, this is what a disciple looks like. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to be a disciple of his. And so he wants to write the church to describe what discipleship looks like and what it means to follow him. And the third theme or emphasis that Matthew has is the kingdom of God. And while that could be said, it's true of all of the gospels, Matthew has a particular emphasis as he talks about the kingdom of God. He wants to put it on display as a wide, generous, gracious kingdom. That this king, as he comes, welcomes all. That his arms are wide open and he calls all. And welcomes them. And indeed, this picture of Matthew is a picture of the wideness that he would reach to a tax collector. And so we see the picture of Jesus and his mission encompasses types of people and groups of people that would be nowhere on our radar. They wouldn't be who we would expect. They would be people that would, that certainly surprised and scandalized the Jewish leaders of his day. And so fulfillment, discipleship, and the wideness of the kingdom of God, we might say, are the the themes that, that Matthew is emphasizing as he frames his gospel. 
And real quickly, an outline of, of the gospel itself. We're not going to cover the whole thing, but many see five blocks of teaching as you read through it. There's five blocks that kind of pillar the book and around it are the events and actions and deeds of Jesus. And the section that we're looking at this morning in, in chapter nine is, a, is in between two blocks of teaching, five through seven, which is the Sermon on the Mount, which explains what it, what it means to live in the kingdom of God, the values of the kingdom. And then in chapter 10, give us the other block of teaching, which is really the teaching of his mission as he begins to send his disciples out on their mission. And so we see in between those two blocks of teaching, we have this, these deeds of Jesus, these actions that he brings. Now we think about the teaching that Matthew wants to demonstrate though, that what Jesus says is unlike what anybody else has said. At the end of chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the last couple verses, we get this. Matthew writes, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And why were they astonished? For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like their scribes. So when they heard Jesus teach, they knew there's something different going on. There was an authority and a power with, with, with which he spoke. But then in between, the next section here, in between these teachings, this authority and teaching, we see these actions. And there's nine miraculous, extraordinary acts that Jesus does in chapter 8 and chapter 9. He heals people. He casts out demons. He calms the storm. He grants forgiveness and heals. And so there's this grouping of nine extraordinary acts that Jesus does. And so in the middle of his teaching... Matthew says, I want you to to see what he does. He teaches with authority. He acts with authority. What he says happens. When he heals someone, it heals. When he forgives someone, he forgives them. They are forgiven. And so the author says, this is what the picture of the kingdom of God looks like when it comes. It comes with power. It comes with authority. Lives are changed and transformed He heals the sick. He restores the broken. He calms that which is out of control and he forgives. So we see this picture. But right in the middle, right of all of these events, these pictures that Jesus has done, we see this account of Matthew being called. And I think in the middle of this, we see the real picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. Yes, it looks like all these things and his power is displayed in this way, but there's more to understand about the kingdom of God. And we find in the calling of Matthew, I think the center, the heart of what the kingdom of God looks like and what it means to be a part of following Christ in this kingdom. That we understand that in the middle is this picture, this tax collector who's being called to fellowship with the king. That Jesus would go after this one And the gospel writer says, I don't want you to miss this picture in the midst of all these deeds. Central is my heart to go after these folks, to go after people like Matthew and people like us. So as we think about the three themes of fulfillment and discipleship in the kingdom of God, and we think about this passage, I want to ask the question, what does discipleship look like? What does it mean to be a disciple of Christ? What does it mean to follow him? What can we learn as we look at this narrative, these five verses about what it means to follow him today? What does it look like for us to follow Christ? What can we glean from this picture? And there's three different perspectives we're going to have as we look at these verses. There's there's three different audiences that, that, that make up this particular narrative, right? There's Matthew... There's his disciples and there's the Pharisees. 
And so each one, as we ask the question about following Christ, will tell us something a little different, will frame discipleship for us just a little bit differently. First Matthew, then his disciples, and then the Pharisees will help us answer that question. And Matthew, I think, sets this up for us. He gives us a picture that we can look at and learn and find out what the answer to this question is. First of all, Matthew, in verse 9, Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And and he rose and he followed him. Here's the picture, right? We don't know he's in Capernaum. We know that. This is the hometown of Jesus at this point. And we have Matthew doing what Matthew does. He's a tax collector. He's just sitting there. And we see that that Jesus comes up. He he sees him. He finds him. and, And he comes after him. He invites him. He says, follow me. He calls him to follow him. Now, it's important to note here, here's Matthew, the tax collector, to learn a little bit about what tax collectors do. He's got his storefront open, right? He's, he's there doing what tax collectors do. He's assessing and collecting, levying taxes and gathering it from, from people as a, as a good tax gatherer would do. Just so happens he happens to have a, to, to have a very good location. He's on this trade route from Egypt up to Syria. As people would come through Judea, he's one of the tax collectors there to, to gather both income from income taxes from people internally as well as this customs and export and import taxes as people would come through. And, and you can imagine that he is invested with the power of Rome to do what he needs to do to exact taxes with a lot of without a lot of rules that are present to guide the process and as you can imagine that system is just set up it's rife with corruption and so they, they, they can, as a result he about any tax collector would find themselves in a in a, an opportunistic situation right and they were fairly, fairly wealthy people. And if you've been around the church long enough, you also know they're not wealthy. They're despicable people. They're despised. They're downcast. They're outcasts from the, the church, from Jews. They had no place there. They, they, they were not, they were regarded really as the lowest of the low. They were crooks and they were extortionists. And if that wasn't bad enough, they worked for the Roman government. On behalf of them, their oppressors, the enemy, they lined their pockets at the, at the cost of their own brothers. And so we see that's a little bit of, of who they are. And they were despised in every way, socially and eth- ethnically and politically and religiously. And they were ceremonially unclean as well. So Jews would have nothing to do with them because of that and because of their lifestyle. That's there. They're generally lumped together as you read through the scriptures, like in this case, together with sinners and tax collectors. They're, they kind of go together and sometimes you'll see sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. So they're kind of lumped together in that category, in that group. But, but we might speculate that, that tax collectors might be uh, the, the most hated of all of them. And, and why is that? Because they're the richest. Because they had a lot of money. And they got it. And so they, they, they were despised in that respect. And, and so they were marginalized um, in their society. We're, little, we're told very little about the exact situation, but that's Matthew. He's sitting, he's just doing his job. He's got his shop open. He's got his booth open. And here he is. And Matthew, and, and Jesus comes and finds him in the busy streets of Capernaum. He comes up, he sees him. 
And you go, well, what's that mean that he sees Matthew? Well, there's a, hundreds of people on the street, but we're told that Jesus saw him specifically. Particularly, he saw him and he went after him in an individual kind of way. And what exactly did Jesus see? We're not exactly told that, but he saw something that only the Son of God could see as he looks at a tax collector. He obviously looks on the inside, not the outside, because everybody else looks on the outside. But he, he sees him and he comes to him. In this short account, he says, follow me. And what does Matthew do? What does Matthew do? He does the unthinkable. Here he is. He's busy doing his work. He's just doing what he's supposed to do. And out of nowhere, Jesus breaks into his life and he calls him. He says to, to follow him. And he tells us, Matthew says, this is what I did in third person. But he says, I, I, I got up, I closed up shop and, and I followed him. And we sit here and go, why would you do that? What, what's going on? Why would you, why would you leave such an incredible, lucrative practice and follow this person? Why would you follow Christ? Why would you take such a drastic step? What could have been so significant about following Jesus that would have motivated you to do this? The the fact is, we're just not told much. We're just told the facts that, that he was called to follow him and he got up and he left. But we might ask some questions if we could interview him, if we could hear his personal story, which we don't have here because this story is less about Matthew and more about Jesus. But, but, but we might ask, what, what was it? What was going on in your life? What was happening at this point in time that would cause you to respond in this way? Was there something about life that was missing? Was there an ache? Was there an empty part of your life that money and whatever you had couldn't fill? Was there, was there something that was missing in that moment you knew it? It was, you know, were there, was there a, a, kind of that God-shaped vacuum that was present there in your life that you knew? Did you desire as a Jew to come near to the presence of the living God, but knew you had no way that you could approach him, that you, like the tax collector in the parable, had no basis on which to approach God and God approached you, and the only way you could respond was to give up and to go? Was was that what you wanted? Did you want to have fellowship with others and knew that you couldn't because of your own uncleanness, that you would contaminate them? Did you long for that? I don't know. We don't know what was going on in the life of Matthew. But all this to say that whatever was happening circumstantially matched perfectly with the call. The timing of the call of Jesus when he saw him and said, follow me. Because the the account gives no gap between invitation and response. It's very simple. It's very natural. And he just simply responds. It's uncomplicated. He just responds to him. And these explanations, we're not exactly sure what took place, but that's what he did. And we know that he followed him. The baseline here is because Jesus called him. And and the calling of Christ is gracious and it's irresistible. And for Matthew, there was no other choice to be made besides to follow him. He was simply astonished that Jesus saw him came to him and would invite him into his company. Not just come and talk to him, not just come and lecture him, but say, come and follow me. It would blew his categories that this Jesus would do that. Jesus, by the way, he would have known of, would have known who he was. And so this invitation was indeed an invitation to life. 
and was worth whatever it would cost to have. So as we look at Matthew and we think about him, we ask the question, what do we learn about discipleship? What do we learn about, what's this picture tell us in this moment? First of all, discipleship involves an encounter with Jesus. It involves an encounter with Jesus, that that Jesus breaks into the life of the person. He, He comes and he steps into our lives as he stepped into the life of Matthew, that he disrupts us. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're just kind of, maybe you find yourself, think you are seeking God and he shows up. Maybe you aren't seeking him. Maybe like Matthew, you're just kind of minding your own business and he invades your life. He disrupts your life in certain kinds of ways to get your attention. A phone call, something happens in your life that you didn't expect Maybe it's more subtle than that. Maybe there's this ongoing dissatisfaction or disillusionment with life that you've had and you just go, there's got to be something more than this. I have, a, I have a memory, a distinct memory of a, as a young man getting my first brand new car. My first brand new car, it was a red fast car. It was, uh, it had a, a moonroof and it had leather wrapped steering wheel and a five speed manual. I could go on, but I won't. But I, I, it was a great car. I, I loved it. And um, I can still remember, though, after getting in, you're like, yes, I got it. I'm sitting at a stoplight, and I can still, I can picture where I was uh, right now. And I remember sitting in this cool new car and going, is, is, is this it? Somehow it, it hadn't given me what I was, what I somehow thought that it was, it would. It was a cool car. You know, clutch went out at 60,000 miles. You know, it breaks down. That probably had something to do with my driving more than anything. But bottom line is it didn't satisfy. And it was just subtle. I was a believer, by the way, but there was other things I was kind of going after. And it was kind of one of those little moments. The guy just says, breaks in and says, wait a second. Guess what? There's more to life. These are fine things. There's nothing wrong with it, but you're not going to find it here. And he kind of puts his hand against it and says, this is a moment. I'm going to, I want you to see this. And so he does that. He encounters us. We encounter him in those moments. Maybe there's something else that's gone on in your life. Maybe there's, there's another kind of episode that's happened where you have found that you are capable of saying things, thinking things, or doing things that you couldn't have imagined. Maybe you have done something or said something that you just thought you wasn't capable of. And as a result that it's brought this kind of awareness of your inability to save or to change yourself, your inability to be pleasing to God, let alone anyone else. Maybe you've come to that moment and you've seen that and you have found that you're hopeless and you're helpless, that you're in so deep that you can't even lift yourself up by your own bootstraps as it were. And you find yourself there. That's a a point, it's an episode where Jesus breaks into our lives and we encounter him in these moments, no matter what those moments might be like, that he's calling us to follow him there, to trust him, to cast our sinfulness, our helplessness, our hopelessness, what we can't do to cast them upon him and to find him to be able to save us. So or this discipleship, it involves an encounter with Christ. Sometimes it's like a, uh, two by four upside the head. Sometimes it's a gentle, gentle tug. The bottom line is he steps into our lives. If you've experienced it, you, you know what that's like. 
If you haven't, I would invite you just to wait because it won't be long because he will. The second thing we can learn about discipleship from Matthew is that it entails a call for all. It entails a call for all, for everything. In Luke's account, he tells us a little bit more that we could kind of speculate from the Matthew account, but he tells us simply that when he left, he left everything behind to follow Jesus. He left everything and he followed him. And the question we want to ask is, what does it mean to leave everything? Well, what's interesting is the very next verse, we find them at this celebration. At Most likely, they're at Matthew's house. So he didn't give away everything. But what it means to leave everything is to leave your way of life. It means to leave the way that you live, the form and the frame and the orientation of your life, to leave that behind. He left everything as in he left everything in the way of his life, not just his stuff, but he, the way he lived and what he lived for, his values, what was right, what was to be lived for, what would direct him, where he would go. That was what he left behind. He took on, if you will, a new master. A new master that now that, that set the terms of, of how he was to live. As he followed Christ, he left the master behind and he followed the new master. That's what discipleship looks like. It's an exclusive call. You can't follow two masters. It's not possible. And he recognizes that. And so he leaves everything in order to take on this new master of following Christ. And the invitation to follow Christ is indeed an invitation to life. But at the same time, it's an exclusive call. It's a call to Christ alone as master. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes in The Cost of Discipleship this this powerful little phrase. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Come and die. Now Bonhoeffer went on to give his life for what he believed, that discipleship. The call to die is really for us first a a call to die to anything that we're going to find life in apart from Christ. He bids a man come, call, come and die. You see, there are no half measures it's, it's not all or nothing, it's simply all. And we're brought to this conclusion that life is found nowhere outside of Christ. And his call is complete and exclusive. And Matthew says, do you see this picture? This is the call to discipleship. It begins with an encounter to Christ. And it ends with a complete call where everything is involved is on the table. Second, audience. The disciples. The next, it goes on in verse 10 here. Jesus, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners were were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Okay, so as if calling a tax collector be one of your disciples, one of your father's followers wasn't crazy enough, this next picture is even more absurd, right? Here is Jesus in the middle of a party with his disciples that's thrown by Matthew and, and who's there? Tax collectors and sinners. We see that what happens next, and, Ma- and Luke tells us a little more about this, is that Matthew made a great feast and a large number of sinners and tax collectors came. That he threw throw a, uh, a party, a, a, a dinner, a feast for Jesus. And you see Matthew's instincts here, right? When something significant happens, this is what you do. You celebrate. And what could there be more to celebrate than to follow this following of Christ and the invitation to follow him and to find life? 
And so, and the question is, who does a tax collector invite to come to his party? That sounds like a joke, I know. So who does a tax collector call? Okay, who does he? The only friends he has. Sinners and tax collectors. That's who's going to come. And so here we find this picture of Jesus in the middle of this feast with his disciples and who's there. All of Matthew's friends. All of his friends, he says, come, meet this guy. And so we see this picture, and, and, and Matthew wants us to see this. You might say that his disciples are kind of coming along on an educational field trip as they enter, come to this party. And Matthew says, I want you to see this picture in the center of this account, in the middle of this narrative. Because he says that as Jesus reclined at the table, he uses this characteristic word, behold. And in, in the ESV it has it, some of the other versions don't. But it's a very important word, behold. He uses it throughout his gospel, and this is what it means. He says, don't miss this picture. Behold this. Look at this. And he wants to emphasize. It's like if you put a picture on the wall, he's like he's pointing. He says, look at the picture. Look at what's happening here. Look at what Jesus is. Look who's with him. Behold this. Don't miss this. Jesus, in an intimate meal, fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. And by the way, this, this is hard for us in our culture to grasp. But in the Jewish culture of the day, to have a dinner, especially like this, the language reminds us this is a ceremony, this is a celebration, a feast. To have a dinner with, with, with a person is the most intimate thing that you could share. One of the most intimate things you could share is a meal with them, is to, to be with them. Because this is what you're saying when you have this meal with them, as you're saying, these are my people. They're with me, and I am with them. And so Jesus, by entering into this place, into this dinner, this celebration, it's, it, that's what he's doing. And of course, we learn later, the Pharisees had no idea what to do, but that's, that's the picture. And so it's an amazing picture that Matthew paints that he doesn't want us to miss the gravity, the craziness of Jesus in the middle of this unclean group of outcasts. And he's led his disciples right in there with them. That's where he is. That's where they are. And so the question we want to ask is, why is this scene so important that the human author and the divine author wants to make sure that it's emphasized. Why is this picture so important that he wants to emphasize it for us? Well, I think it's because it's central to the very heart and the mission of Jesus. I think if you want to be his disciple, you need to understand this is what he is about. This is where you'll find him. This is why he came. This is who he came for. And you need to understand that. And Matthew says, see this picture now, now, more will be said about his mission throughout the entire gospel, but a picture is worth a thousand words. And to look at this picture and to see it and to behold it and understand it is to see, oh, I think I get it. I think I understand more now when I see Jesus here with this group of people. So we need to be careful to see this connection of Jesus and his disciples in this setting as the, to the centrality of his mission. And so the question is, what do we do with this as we think about discipleship? So first of all, this picture is a model. It has to impact the way we understand Christ. It needs to inform us. If we're going to be a disciple, if we're going to follow him, we understand what's on his heart. We don't know what it is that he cares about and allow that to affect the way we think, the way we live, the places we go, how we see people. 
and allow it to shape us and form us that his mission is central to those who are on the outside and to live in light of that. And that should lead a, leave a mark on it as we see that picture. But secondly, to follow Christ, to be his disciple, we need to understand the discipleship is following him and following him will inevitably take us to places and to people we wouldn't normally go. He's taking them, his disciples, to places they wouldn't dare have walked into. This was indeed a training session, an educational field trip for his disciples. And if you can imagine the discussion that they might have had as Jesus says, we're going to go here. We're going to go to the home of our newest disciple and we're going to have a dinner with these people. What they might have been said to one another, we're going to to do what again? We're going to go where and do what? And Jesus, we might have also been benefited from learning from the debrief session that happened after that field trip. It's there. So it was training for them, but it's training for us. Because where Jesus leads, if we follow him, is, is bound to be uncomfortable and awkward and will disrupt us. And sometimes dangerous. It's going to be awkward. It had to be for them. It's going to be unusual. It probably was for them. And even kind of dangerous. Now, it wasn't physically dangerous, but don't, don't miss this point. This was socially dangerous for his disciples. Okay? To, to enter into this fellowship with these, this group of people was to become unclean, religiously, ceremonially. And that meant that they would be separation some, in some way socially from them. So it was dangerous. And so to follow Christ is a dangerous place. But a healer must get his hands dirty. And when we see and we think about discipleship, it involves taking in and allowing his heart to be cultivated in ours. And it involves following him and will inevitably take us to places we'd rather not go. Third audience. First one, Matthew, right? Encounter with Christ involves all his discipleship. Second audience, we have his disciples. We need to take and inculcate this, the passion that Christ had to reach the lost. At the same time, it leads us into places we wouldn't go. Third audience, the Pharisees. Of course, they got to show up, right? 11, 12, and 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, uh, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Quick, by the, by the way, uh, I'm not so sure this is a question as much as an accusation. And secondly, why is it that they would ask the sheep and not the shepherd? Interesting questions that I have answers to. But they asked the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard that, that, that's Jesus, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Of course, the Pharisees show up in this particular scene, right? That's their job to... To, uh, to police all these kinds of things. And of course, what they're doing, they're gathering information and dirty laundry so they can throw stones, they can, they can uh, judge. That's what they're there for. It might be helpful for us to know that this particular picture, that this account, this feast, was probably more of a public affair as opposed to a private one. Because, you know, how would they know about that? It's probably either outside on a patio. And the other thing that that some have thought that it's very possible that the invitation that Matthew put out would have been an invitation for all. 
In fact, he would say anybody who wants to come can come to this feast. And in that case, the Pharisees would have been invited. But of course, they wouldn't have no interest in going. And so here they are on the outside looking in. And what's their job? What's their, what, are, what are they doing, right? What their job is in, in protecting what they thought was the law was drawing lines and separating and wanting to divide people and say they're different from us. And that, and so doing, they could protect themselves from this uncleanness. That they could seek out this kind of righteousness that they thought they could manufacture. See, Jesus had a completely different idea of what righteousness was. He knew it couldn't be manufactured by humanity. It must be brought by him. And so he comes to them to bring righteousness. The Pharisees had no idea. All they had was their own self-righteousness. And they were offended by the holy righteousness that Christ would bring. And they had no category for him spending time with this group of people. And they were offended by him. And so Jesus, as he hears this question, this accusation of why would you eat with them? We need to to kind of get the key to this question. And I think the the key unlocks our understanding of the the mission of Jesus. Because they're saying, how on earth would you do this? How could you eat with them? And Jesus, on the other hand, would say something like this. How can you not? How can you not? What what don't you get about this? And he goes on to give them a, an assignment, right? He says he says that you know he gives them an analogy first, and an assignment. The analogy is it's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. And then he says, here's your assignment: go and learn what this means. The sick who need a doctor, and so this is where we go. This is how we find ourselves going in these kinds of places. And the question we might ask is, who's the sick and who's the healthy in this situation? And what does it exactly mean to be healthy? If we're kind of unpacking this, we would come to understand that there's no one that's really healthy. That, that all are sick with the illness, the sickness, if you will, of sin. That in the context of chapters 8 and 9 that, that have all to do with this physical healing, we see that Jesus comes alongside. He says, I have the authority to heal sick, sickness physically, but I also have the authority and the power to heal the sickness of sin. And he comes and he steps into the situation, and that's what he demonstrates. And the assignment that he gives them is to, to go and go, go learn what this means, that I desire mercy and not sacrifice. It's a, a statement taken from the book of Hosea. And, and really, there's a lot that could be said about this. I've just got a few minutes, so I'll boil it down to this. It means this. It means that what God is most concerned about is mercy. What, what he wants to see in play is mercy and love and compassion. And, and that's why he's there. See, they were interested in sacrifice and, and keeping the law that's separated. And Jesus says, no, what I'm most interested in, what's primary is mercy, not sacrifice. Yeah, sacrifice is good and you'll get there. But you have to have the order proper, the order right. Mercy first precedes Sacrifice. You have to keep them in that way. And the question is, what does it mean to go learn what that means? And I think the way we learn what it means is by looking at the picture again. By looking at the picture, seeing Jesus in the middle of that table with those people and saying, this is what it looks like to learn that. It's the sick who need a doctor, not the healthy. It's, a, it's not the, the righteous, quote in quotes, who need to be saved. It's the unrighteous, which involves everyone. everyone. And the way we understand this is to see that, that we need to behold the picture. And in that way, we understand what Jesus is about. We understand what it means to be a disciple. The Son of God, the righteous one sent for this purpose to fulfill God's righteous mission to go to the needy. 
Final question. What do we learn about discipleship as we look at this audience? First of all, Jesus wants to make it clear there are not two categories of humanity. There's not the sick and the healthy. There's not the righteous and the unrighteous. We all find ourselves in the exact same condition. Sick with the illness of sin that is ultimately terminal and will take us apart from His work and what He can do. Finding ourselves to be unrighteous. Needing only what He can provide. A righteousness. His, his cleansing. And so to be a disciple of Jesus means that we get this. That we have learned this. That we continue to learn this process. That, oh yeah, that's us. <laughs> yeah, that's us. We are sick with sin being healed by Him. We find ourselves with the righteousness that He grants. But I'm in the process of learning that I don't get to build my own worthiness. I find myself right there with them. That's what it means to be a disciple. A couple commentators, the comments that commentators make. Uh, the kingdom is a one-class society for sinners only. It's a one-class society for sinners only. Another one. The church is the only fellowship where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. <laughs> the only requirement is that you know you don't belong there. And you're in. You get it. And that's what it means. There's, there's not two categories. There's one. We're in with the, if you will, the sinners and the tax collector. That's where we belong. Second comment on discipleship. What we learn is that to be a disciple of Jesus is to see him sitting in the middle of this picture of sinners and tax collectors, the most unworthy, and to rest in this truth he would be comfortable with me as well. That he would invite me to the table. That he is comfortable in my life as he look at my heart, as he sees me in all of my ugliness and my despicability, my corrupt heart, that he is comfortable with me as well. And so the question for us is, where do you locate yourself in this picture? Do, do you see yourself around the table with Christ? Do you, do you see that you, you, you fit there like Matthew understood? I'm with him. And he understood like the tax collector from Luke chapter 18 that he had no access to God, but he was humbled and as a result was exalted. He gets to sit with Jesus at this meal. And growth as a disciple allows me to better locate myself in this picture in the proper place. As I grow as a disciple of Christ, I get it. I know where I belong. Yeah, right there. In that group, that his remedy has come and has saved me, but I don't, I don't have anything of myself. And as we get that, as we understand that what it means to be a disciple now is that the healed now have something to offer to others. Those who recognize their condition before Christ have this graciousness and this kindness to offer to others to, to come alongside him in his mission to reach those who need it just like we do and did and continue to live in the reality of that to experience the fullness of our Savior's grace to offer it to others. This mercy of God that we have experienced, that we have something to give away. And we have situated ourselves around the table with Jesus. We were amazed that we're there. We're amazed that he would call us to be his. And now we're ready. We're prepared to follow him where he leads us. We're prepared to be sent by him, wherever we would go. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this grace and mercy. Thanks for calling us to be yours, for countering our lives and, and stepping in and breaking in. 
Father, for each one of us, I pray that we would, like Matthew, respond. Know that there's only one place of life. That you would, in an ongoing way, enable us to bow the knee to your lordship. That you would be the only master in our lives. And that you would be so gracious to reveal to us that that truth that life is found there alone. And would you lead us into a world, fallen, broken people in need of your grace in an ongoing way, but with, with a story to tell, with a message to give, inviting our friends around us to see Jesus. Father, as a, as a group of people, there are many needs in our congregation. And, and I just ask, Father, that you would, you would bring your healing upon us uh, all the, the various needs for physical healing and emotional and relational, financial needs that we have, Father's list of them that have gone on. And I pray, Father, that you would be with us in that, that we would be able to, indeed as well, help heal each other, help us as we, as we walk on this road. Father, I do pray for uh, our missionaries in different places around the world. And think of Dan Rudman in Ethiopia and, and Kelly in Libya and Cameroon. I pray that you would, you would keep your hand upon them and that you would use them in this process. Father, we're grateful uh, that you would call us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.